0: welcome to what is the start of an eight-week series. Um, It's a series we're calling Body Matters, and it's a really important series aiming to look at, aiming to give us a clear perspective on what God has to say about our bodies. It's actually, our bodies are one of the things that many of us in the room struggle with most. Have you ever thought about that? The fact that our bodies are one of the things that we can often worry about most. Maybe it's sort of health anxiety, health concerns. Maybe it's concerns about self-image, or sexuality, or comparison. We, why do we? Why does humanity have so many body hand-ups? This is the introduction session. Uh, so on a subject that the world has a lot to say, Today, we're focusing on actually how we, as the church, how we even engage in this conversation. In future weeks, we'll get into what it means to be holistically designed by our Creator. We'll unpack The sort of biblical framework of creation and then the subsequent fall. We'll spend time unpicking uh, the current uh, cultural context that we're in at the moment. We'll look at sexuality. We'll look at our identity, how it's formed, where it should be rooted in. We'll look at what happens uh, to our bodies uh, in eternity. So we've got a lot to cover, (laughs) and we're not going to. Do, I'm not going to be speaking for the next three or four hours. We're going to take our time. We're going to see how God speaks to us as we do it. And we've spent a lot of time um, planning and preparing for this series. But it's really helpful, isn't it, for us to have a conversation? Because this is a conversation that's already happening in schools. In uh, at hospitals, in government. There's a sort of spat going on, isn't there, between the UK and the Scottish governments about um, uh, gender reassignment and what that might look like. So we're going to spend the time engaging with the conversation. We'll see ultimately what the Bible has to say about the subject. And as an accompaniment to the series, um, we are not following a book. Uh, sort of chapter by chapter, but this book, what God has to say about our bodies, is a brilliant accompaniment. If you want to go into a bit more detail on some of the topics we're talking about by Sam Albury, we'd recommend you pick up this one. So that's where we're heading, but today what we're going to focus in on is tone. So how should we even engage in this conversation? And by tone when, and the conversation, we're, it's so much bigger than any news headline, isn't it? It's so much bigger than just one aspect of our bodies. Because if we just focused in too much on one aspect of the conversation, we would truly miss the mark on the incredible stuff that the Bible has to say about this. And hopefully after today's message, you'll really get an idea of how to engage in not just this challenging conversation, but any difficult pastoral uh, challenge, issue, um, how to engage with it in the cultural context that we find ourselves in. But it's really important we do because as a church, we are God's ambassadors. We, uh, in a way, we represent him he made us, every single one of us, he, he uh, as we sung over and over again, we declared how much he loves us, how much he delights in us. And because uh, we're his ambassadors, we need to do a good job at expressing his love, his compassion, his care, and his truth to the world around us. Otherwise, we, we kind of miss it. I think one of the most annoying things, actually, is when someone says something that factually might be true, but they go about it in an arrogant way. Have you ever experienced that? You know, maybe it's at school. Some of you are nodding. Some of you are elbowing the person next to you. Um, sometimes it's at school. I, am obviously worked with a staff team here, and unfortunately, I experienced it in work really recently. Really recently, a guy, a guy called J P. Some of you might know him. He, um, he uh, said, oh. I've come up with this new title for our series we're doing. It's called Body Matters, and it is genius. These are his exact words. He said, it's genius because it plays on matters of the body and also why our bodies really matter. He might have been right, but what a comment to say. That's, that's what I have to put up with. My, um, my wife, Emily, would have to put up with all sorts of stupid comments that I say. You know, I said to her recently, I am unbeaten against you at chess. And uh, the reality is, in the 15 years we've been married, I think we've played chess three times. So it's not, it's not quite a big a statement as, uh, as I might have made out. But let's, seriously, let's not be those people. Let's not be those people who confront people with truth, but we do it without love. Because as we battle with the questions facing our culture, let's first and foremost, let's put on love. In any situation, it is very possible to get the right theology, but not do it without the right heart. And if we don't do it without the right heart, then we're not representing Jesus well. And ultimately, we're probably doing more harm than good. Okay, so to start off with, today we're going to look at how Jesus responded to people. And in particular, um, how he responded to those people on the periphery of society, you know, those who were looked down upon on the, in the ancient Near Eastern world. Um, because when we look at Jesus' response in the Bible, it's beautiful because we actually um, see, when we see Jesus' response, we see God responded. Jesus is God. He came down to earth as a man. And so when we see him relate to people, we actually get God's perspective in the situation. That's, it's incredible, isn't it? We can read God's perspective in the situation through Scripture. So interestingly, when you look at the life of Jesus, he is most direct. He is most confrontational, when, uh, not when he's, looking, when he's talking to people who were on the periphery of society. His righteous anger actually is most often expressed, it's only ever directed at those hypocritical religious leaders, those who had the responsibility to lead the people of God, those who judged others, but then they didn't apply those same judgments to themselves. You never see Jesus respond with righteous anger to those people on the margin But also, when he did respond uh, with righteous anger to those Pharisees, he didn't do it out of a place of not loving them. There's uh, There's no clue that he didn't love them. He did love them, but he just wanted to draw to their attention the reality that they weren't being the ambassadors of God that they had actually been called to be. So, let not our response be in any way similar to those religious leaders, those Pharisees. Let's be a people who reflect the love of God. Okay, so let's have a look at, if you turn with me to Luke 19 verses uh, 1 to 10, we're looking at one of those passages which involves someone who would have been an outcast in that society. So the outcasts were people like the lepers, the prostitutes, the tax collectors, those who were deemed unclean. Let's see how Jesus responded. Okay, and um, if you've got an ESV Bible, I'm not actually reading from the ESV this time, so if you want the exact words, there on the screen. Uh, Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through, and there was a man there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was, a ch- he was a chief tax collector and was wealthy. He wanted to see who Jesus was, but he was short so he couldn't see over the crowd, so he ran ahead And he climbed a sycamore tree to see him, since Jesus was coming that way. When Jesus reached the spot, he looked looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. So he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. All the people saw this and they began to mutter, he's gone to be the guest of a sinner. But Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, look, Lord, Here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor, and if I cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. So Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, because this man too is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. Zacchaeus, he was this outcast in society. Someone who, if uh, you saw Zacchaeus walking down the roads, you would cross over to the other side, you'd try and avoid him. Someone who, um, if he walked down the Ron Alley at night, he might get beaten up or worse. He was hated by his people because he worked on behalf of the, um, the Romans who were the occupying force at the time, um, and he collected taxes for them. Not only was he a tax collector, he was chief tax collector. So he was, he was even more hated. And alongside collecting the taxes that the Romans demanded, he also pocketed a little bit of Zacchaeus tax on the side to see how um, much he could get away with there. The, his name actually means pure one, but he was anything but. Hated by his own people, but also he was an outcast by the Romans as well, because he wasn't a Roman either. He was just someone who people wanted to avoid. Who who are the people that we see on the periphery of our society right now? Who are the ones who we would say they don't quite belong anywhere? What did Jesus do when he encountered Zacchaeus? Well, firstly... We read in the passage, don't we? We see in the passage, he loved him. So Jesus didn't shun him. He didn't ostracize him. Instead, he called him by name. Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. He reached out. He got to know him. He heard his story. He built relationship. And as Jesus did this, what did the people do? They judged Jesus. They said, look, he's gone to be He's gone to eat at the guest of a sinner. But Jesus didn't care about what the crowd said. He cared about Zacchaeus. He reached out hands of friendship and love. That's what God's like. He reaches out hands of friendship and love. And this isn't an isolated incident. We look at Jesus and over and over again, you see that he was loving people others thought he should actually hate. Author and blogger Andrew Bunt said, where there was sin, he never condoned it. He never separated God's truth and love, but he knew that he could not truly express God's truth if he did not also express God's heart. If Jesus responded in this way, then surely we as Grace Church, we uh, the church who has Jesus as our head. He's He's the one who leads them here. He's the one who we worship, who we, um, who we lift up, who we glorify, who we proclaim. Surely, if that's what he did, we should do the same. We're called to be a community that welcomes, that cares for, that loves people. So regardless of your background, if you're marriage is on, on the rocks, then you know, you're so welcome here. If you're suffering any sort of pain and trauma and sadness, this is a place for you to, to be and to be loved. If you identify as trans or if you're suffering with life-controlling issues, addictions, if in any way you feel on the margins, you are welcome here. And let's not forget, before we sort of have too much of a them and us, let's not forget that we were all outcasts. We were all like Zacchaeus. The, the, the Zacchaeus' story is one that resonates with every single one of us. We were like him until Jesus called us by name, before he made the move to welcome us in. You know, I must get to know you. You're no longer an outcast. You're, as it says in this passage, you are a son you are a daughter of Abraham. You're in the family. You're brought in. This is the gospel welcome we've all received. This is how we're to be treated, how we, are, how we were treated, and this is how we're to love others in our community. This means at Grace Church, look, we'd love to get to know you if you're here for the first time, we'd love to get to know you regardless of your background. We'd love to hear your story. This is a place where you can be known because as we do this, we reflect the love of Jesus, the one who called us by name and responded to us in love. Okay. And actually, if our default response as Grace Church, as this community is anything other than love, We've got to examine why this is, and this has got to be a a challenge for us. And we've got to uh, look at the example of Jesus, and we've got to allow the Holy Spirit living inside of each and every person who is a Christian, each and every one of us, we've got to allow him to change us. See what happens. And as we do life together, we should be encouraging one another and speaking life and truth to one another in home groups, in all of our different contexts that we find ourselves in. And as we do that, we mature and we begin to look a little bit more like Jesus. And our heart response is a little bit more like the one that we read in Scripture, the one that we see. And the, the best description, actually, of what a mature disciple looks like we think can be found in Galatians 5. It's the mud that I gave JP because he's a, he is actually a brilliant example of that, in spite of what I said earlier. Um, Galatians 5 verses 22 and 23 says this. This is what it looks like to be a mature disciple. The fruit of the Spirit is love, is joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Don't you want to be a community? <laughs> <laughs> that looks like that, <laughs> I want to be. I'm a million miles away from that, but I want to be more like that. I really do. So let's be a community that exhibits these characteristics, that really listens, rather than just comes up with a clever statement or argument, that actually connects with people behind the debates, so our hearts can grow in love for one another, and compassion for those who are really suffering. Let's extend love and compassion before we talk. Because listening, it actually affirms people's dignity. It honors them as created children of God, whose experiences and feelings matter. Our feelings and our experiences, ultimately, they don't define us, and there'll be more on that later, but they really do matter. So let's seek to understand before we speak. So we also express love, though. In our speaking, it's not just listening. It is in our words. Words are incredibly powerful. So when posting on social media or in conversations, we should always have real people in mind and we should try and love them as best as we can. That's how Jesus did it. He says, I'm with you. I'm for you. What else did he do? Well, secondly, in this passage, we'll see there was a truth response. Love plus truth. Truth. Perhaps Zacchaeus had loads of questions, but he didn't ask them, did he, when he was on top of that sycamore tree? He didn't speak to Jesus then. He came, from the, he came down from the tree, he met Jesus, and then in relationship, he asked Jesus whatever he wanted to And Jesus, we don't see the um, full interaction between them, but Jesus must have answered those questions because what we do see is Zacchaeus' response to it. Ultimately, it's the most incredible response. It's a complete turnaround from his, his, his life. Um, a response that would have been so costly, especially financially to him. He said, I'm going to repay anyone who I've wronged, and that would have been most of the community around him, four times the amount. It shows that the call to follow Jesus is actually a, a costly one. But here's a really important point, actually. The call to follow Jesus, it should be costly for every single one of us. Um, Sam Albury, this is a slight summary of what he says, but essentially he says often the church gets things wrong where the necessity of repentance is in the foreground when it comes to certain things such as the LGBTQ plus people but sins like marriage or adultery or uh, some other um, sins get past, You know, people who sacrifice their family or their careers, those whose identity is tied up on, in anything other than Jesus. They're not asked to repent in some of the same way that something, some other situations uh, the church might demand. So this makes the church look cruel. It makes the church look unusual because it only seems to obviously pick up on certain things. You know, it ignores others. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? The reality is that we all need repentance. I was a sinner I still sin, I still mess up, but I've been saved by grace, by God's goodness, by him alone. He's brought me in, he's welcomed me in. That's my story, that's our story. So let's not underplay the cost of discipleship, actually for every single one of us. This means a healthy church is actually a church where everyone sacrifices. Our lives should look different from the world. It's why the call to Christ is, in part, it's a call to suffer, to lay down our lives for other people. But in laying down our lives, ultimately, we become a community that actually tells a better story, that <laughs> we can love people so well, a, a, a story that ultimately leads to a better joy. In this passage we see that's what happened with Zacchaeus, don't we? His life dramatically turned around. And at at the root of this turning around, we see that Zacchaeus' identity, it changes from tax collector to follower of Jesus or son of Abraham, as Jesus puts it. Um, We see that Zacchaeus, he stopped defining himself by his wealth, that he'd accumulated. And instead, he starts to identify as a follower of Jesus. This means that Zacchaeus, um, there's great cost, there's suffering. He became a lot poorer, but the cost is worth it. And identity is one of the key parts of this whole discussion that we're going to be having over the next eight weeks. You know, questions uh, such as, who am I? Massively important questions, you know, what, what am I living for? They're great questions to ask, and they're the ones that we start to, we'll start to unpack. Who am I? It's this innate question that humanity asks, regardless of background. But ultimately, in order for us to answer that question, who am I, we first need to answer, who defines who I am? And there are, there are three places. It's as simple as this. There are three places you can look to to get your definition of who, who you are. The first one is you can let others define you. So what other people think of you, that is who you are. And it's not even quite as simple as that. It's not what other people think of you. It's what you think other people think of you. But the problem with that is that can be fragile. It can change. You don't actually know the reality of what people think of you. The second thing is you can define your identity by you deciding yourselves, by letting your feelings decide who you are. But again, if you're anything like me, my feelings change. You know, I'm feeling great one minute, I'm feeling less good the next. It's still a fragile situation. Well, the third and final place you can look at to define who you are is you can let God decide who you are. What God says about me is who I am. We'll look at these in more detail in, coming week, in the coming weeks. But so much of this whole conversation, it starts with that question. And whilst um, in our current cultural question, it, um, current cultural context, this question has a particular angle, um, the... In the last 15 years or so, it's only been more sort of common par- parlance that uh, we started to talk about gender in this way. Asking the question, who I am, who am I rather, is nothing new. You know, as a middle class uh, teenager growing up in the 90s, uh, I asked the question and I did what most people in my situation did. We went backpacking. So went to Thailand, Singapore, Australia um, to find myself uh, to do a little bit of, uh, b- bit of that. And I've got a little excerpt from my diary I thought I'd uh, share with you. Apologies for how I spoke as a 22-year-old. Maybe it hasn't changed that much in the intervening 20-plus years. Okay. The first day and This is from an the, the first day in Northern Thailand involved a pickup truck ride and then a four-hour hike. The scenery and the crazy-looking insects were amazing. We arrived at the Hill Tribe Village 120 or so people at 5pm. I thought it wasn't going to be a very authentic hill tribe, but it was literally a little farming community. There were three religions, Buddhism, Christianity, and the worship of spirits and nature in this tiny community. Until recently, they used to grow opium, but the Thai government had tried to support other forms of farming, although there was still evidence of this past. so As dispersed around the village, there was the odd cocoa and opium plant. Uh, Mr. T, our guide for the trip, and an absolute legend. Um, His name didn't sound anything like T. I think he was just an A-Team fan. He found a guitar, and our group and a few villagers had a little jam until the early hours, which was quality. Simon and Garfunkel seemed to be very popular in Thailand's northern hill tribes. Um, As a midnight snack, some of the villagers fried up these moth-like insects, which apparently gets you stoned. So did did I have a good time there? Yeah, of course I did. It was, it was an incredible experience. Did I find my true self, my authentic self? No. I didn't find it in a plain Simon and Garfunkel with some northern hill tribes, Thailand's hill tribes. Because the Bible says understanding who we are, understanding our identity and what we're living for, it comes from God. Verse 9, Jesus said to him, today salvation has come to this house because this man too is the son of Abraham. God gave Zacchaeus that title. It comes from him. doesn't come from us. It's not achieved. It's not defined by our feelings. It's not discovered inside. Instead, we see that God defines who we are. Sons and daughters of Abraham, chosen ones, adopted into his kingdom. It's what we sung over and over again this morning. It's what was prayed out. It was so good for our souls. That's who you are. That's who we are. So before we define ourselves as anything else, you know, a husband or a survivor or an alcoholic or a businesswoman or a trans man or a train driver, first and foremost, we are sons and daughters of Abraham, every single one of us. He's brought us into his kingdom. And in that moment, we saw Zacchaeus' identity called out. More on that in a few weeks' time. Okay, so finally, so we see Jesus did this love and this truth response. What does that equal? Well, it equals hope. It equals hope. Because salvation has come to this house, we can have hope through our lives in the face of suffering. And also, when we're experiencing joy, we can have hope. Jesus promises to be with us every step of the way. It says in 2 Corinthians, as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. He's with us. He's for us. He's working on our characters. He's maturing us. So as we hope in him, it brings us love um, and comfort. He promises to bring us love and comfort. So whatever you're going through right now, However great the pain, whatever the challenges that you're currently facing in your life, there's a reason to hope, isn't there? Because the God of all comfort is with you now. And there's a promise, not only that he's going to be with you now, he's with you now. There's a promise to eternity that that there will be a day when that pain will end. When our physical, when our mental uh, challenges and our pain, the discomfort that some people feel almost all the time, when there's the the pain um, of of our bodies, that will be a thing of the past. Suffering will cease. We'll be able to fully be the people that God has created us to be. And whilst this doesn't mean an immediate end to suffering, ultimately... As embodied children of God, we're going to spend eternity with him. Revelation 21, it says this. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for a husband Plus hope, plus truth equals hope. Let's have the back. We want to be a people who love each other with our lives. We want to be a people who um, extend a hand of friendship to anyone who feels on the periphery of society just like Jesus did. We're also called to be truth speakers because love Without truth isn't actually love at all. But God's truth, it's good for us. It changes us. It conforms us to more of his likeness. We experience actually the only true and everlasting joy you can experience through him. And so, as Grace Church, let us do these things. Because as we proclaim his kingdom, as we proclaim his, his, the hope that we have in him, it ultimately brings hope to the world around us and transforms society.